Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with me, Dan Cottrell. And I'm delighted to welcome along all the way from sunny New Zealand, because it's the morning there, Peter Russell. So welcome to the podcast, Peter. Yeah, good morning, Dan. Things have changed quite a lot in the world since uh, we first organised ourselves to uh, talk about rugby. But uh, the key for me today is to talk about the future and what we're doing. And you come up with some things you've been working really hard at. So uh, just a little bit of background. Uh, Pete, a very experienced coach, um, worked with premier teams across across the globe, actually. Uh, he was head coach of Hawke's Bay, assistant coach with the Highlanders Super Rugby team, head coach at Newcastle Falklands, uh, NEC Green Rockets, and is now working with, if I'm going to pronounce this right, a Manawatu Mitre 10 Cup team. Anyway, the thing we were going to talk about was the game plan concept trends and how to expose uh, or the exposure of defensive systems. So starting with the game plan, tell me a bit more about um, what you're doing at the moment. Well, since uh, I suppose you could say the, um, the uh, pandemic stepped in, we've had time to really reflect back on our last season. Um you know, it's it's all about what oppositions are doing and defensive patterns. Uh, they're very aggressive. You know, if you look at um, what Sean Edwards is doing with France at the moment in terms of their their go get him attitude and you know the right outside the defensive line. So how do you break those down? And we come to the same conclusion as that we have to have dual playmakers in um, most roles, but mainly around that 10-15. And you've noticed that through the last couple of years with the All Blacks, with um, the 15 and the 10 in the backfield. Now, that's that's duly because they're trying to create an opportunities of counter, but also you have these key decision makers that can step in and take control of short side attack or open side attack. So it's quite, it's quite um, uh, what would I call it, canny, how these things have unfolded over the last couple of years and how teams are trying to break down defensive patterns. So the key, the key here is that 10 and 15 are sort of standing in what we might call a pivot position, which is the, the traditional 10 position. And how, how, how are they able to call the shots? Well, I suppose you can go through your game plan scenarios and, and what I'm finding sort of coming back home from overseas over the last couple of years is that um, a, lot of, a lot of teams are basing everything around the same sort of principles of you know, a setup of a one three three one, which is a the forwards spaced across the field and how we can utilise that, or a 2-4-2. Two, two. And that's that's a plan that teams come up with in terms of utilising their forwards and what they use off that in terms of attack. And these um, playmakers, as you said, Dan, the 10 and 15, now take control of those areas with help from outside members, wings and centres. So can just, um, I mean, we are getting more and more familiar with uh, the the one three three one and the two four two. So just briefly, uh, can you just explain how they're set up? And the other thing I'm going to ask after that is, um, how long does it take to introduce such a system to a team which has never come across? So just a quick, first of all, quick explanation of how they are set up with the one three three one, for instance. Okay, I have a I have a bit of beef if I can say this. A lot of coaches that I hear, I hear this from the sidelines. Get into shape. Get into shape. Mm. Well. Unfortunately, we haven't gone over the gain line yet, so that's the 
number one priorities. Let's win the ball, let's go forward, get over the game line and keep possession. And that's that hasn't changed for quite a few decades. Hmm. Um, and then that's when we get into our shape off a touchline. Right, okay, okay. So just in the middle sorry, of the just field. going back as yeah, going back a stage then. I'm just making sure then. So before we even get into shape, we have to go forward. We yes, have we to get across that game. Play. Principles of play. So let, let's start with that then and then go to the shape. So uh, let's assume we're, we're, we've gained possession in some way um, and then we've got to go over the game line. So let's, uh, what would you, what are you telling your players or encouraging your players to do to actually get over the game line if they're not having to run around to find themselves in some mythical shape? So what we're asking them to do is uh, get over the game line with good support. So basic principles of ball carry, going win the collision, get over the game line, dent the defensive line and create quick phase ball to do it again and again until we get what we want from it. Right. Yeah. And then and then they get into shape. So what does that what does that shape then look like? Depending on the defense system, if you've um, manipulated a defensive line, if you've breached the line, you keep playing. There's no shape whatsoever. So it's just general play until there's a situation that they've stopped you making more momentum and then you get into shape so that that for us is usually trying to get to a, a touch line or close to so you can stop their aggressive defensive line and it's usually off the touch line where the most of the line speed comes from right so uh, just going back then so when when you get the ball to the touch line i say a ruck is um created there then um how does that prevent an aggressive defense once once you're on the touch line you set up a shape, so you probably, we use three three players in a pod, um, mm. a chief ball carrier and, and two decision makers. They're not support players because they are decision makers. They are actually right. in those positions to make relative quick decisions to help the ball carrier. So you, you either keep it tight and take a, a phase off the touchline, or you play through your 10, which gets it to a wider channel. And that's when you can start creating your shape and, and deceptions and plays off those shapes. All right, and how does that then um, cause the defence problems? Well, usually what you're trying to do is capture the, the slower um, members of the defensive line, usually the bigger men with the small mm. numbers, or <laughs> someone that's quite um, frantic in defence. And you can usually pick this out, usually through your analysis of the game, previous games of the opposition you're going to play. Um, if you haven't had that at uh, club level or, or lesser level, um, then you've got to have certain players in your team that can pick those those weaknesses out. And usually it's the mismatch and those those ones that are making missed tackles that you really try to pick on. And usually with line speed, they, they try and put you under pressure. So they come pretty hard. And you have to have players in those decision-making roles with support that actually um, can call quick plays. And usually you have a quick setup play as a, or a release to get you out of those troubles. Okay, so a quick setup play would be something like... I hope I'm not, you're not going to give me away um, team secrets here. No, no. It's no, pretty no. stock standard, I think. Yeah, right, good. <laughs> so quick, quick setup play then. Well, you might have um, a release from the, the ruck through the nine, through your first pair of hands in that pod, and then he has a release out the back of that with everyone doing their alignment roles correctly to hold the opposition and have a short play off that that gets you to the midfield. And usually what you're trying to find is create a mismatch by one of those big men in the midfield that is retreating slowly. Right. Um, 
and then you can have a play either side of that, an inside or an outside ball. And that's where you try to expose them through the middle of the field. Right. And then from there, you hope that the defence will have been um, dented, out of position, and then um, a decision maker could then say, right, this is the way we're going to go, or this, we're going to go this way or kick it or something like that. Yes, yes. So you, you, that's, that's the thing with multiple tasks, I suppose, you could have with your, your fly half or number 10 or your 15, that they have you know, talents of the kick pass, which has come right into the game these days. But that's because of the narrow defence. And I'll talk about the defence a little bit later on, is that you're trying to manipulate as many players as you can, knowing what their defensive system is. Now, if, as I said before, you get into shape to create or dent the opposition D-line again. Once you're in behind that, it's just general play. The shape goes out the window until they stop you at another edge again or in the middle of the field that you want to regenerate quick ball. All right, so shape is um, is like a response to when the ball's slowed down then? Yes, yes, it, it is very much so. And and from that, you want to try and manipulate the defence to get your attack going again. So that that's why it's important that everyone in your squad understands your philosophy on attack, how we're going to play it, the decision-making roles that everyone has to have, the correct calls, simple quick calls that everyone can listen and adhere to. But then at the end of the day, it's about that continuity, maintain position, go mm. forward with pace. That's what you're trying to create to put that defence off. So uh, so let's uh, let's take the... Um take it away from, say, 10 and 15 who are making the calls. So you've got your players who aren't making, the, say, the big decisions. They're making the small decisions. What um, what sort of calls are they listening out for and what are they going to be their role? So you said that, uh, say, a ball carrier is um, obviously going to take the ball to the line or maybe pull it back. So the, the players around him, they're obviously got important roles. So what's, what sort of things are you feeding into them? What are they listening out for? What are they looking for? So we'll wind back a little bit. So once once you have that D D line set, mm. um, it's usually quite narrow these days. If you notice that uh, there's usually 15 or so metres from the touchline to the first defender. And it's usually um, a wing, of course, or a 10 or a 9 on those edges. Mm. So what you're trying to think about is trying to get that ball to that space as quickly as you can. The only ones that really can make those decisions are the ones that are being opposed by that defender, which is usually the wings and the centre. Right. So now those men now have to be the voice of the team. Ah, right. So they're not looking in, and that's one aspect of the game that you'll notice where everyone says, I'll oh, get the ball to space, but everyone's looking at the ruck. <laughs> so let's let's have these let's have these men out on the wing calling the plays space wide, space wide, space here, kick pass, whatever our terminologies are going to be. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that feed the information in. They're doing their job. So once you, once you have those calls coming in and everyone's reacting well enough for those calls to work, that's when your team can really thrive in terms of attack. If no one's calling in, you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Now, of course, they're, they're calling in. Now, the guy who's, say, at, uh, standing in the pivot position, he's then got to choose whether he, he takes that call up or ignores it, or has he got to... Uh, He's always got to go with that call. Yeah, that's why they get paid the big money, Dan. There's <laughs> <laughs> a few of those around the world. But okay. anyway, you know, this 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 is why they are. This is why they get paid the big money, and this is why they're they're in those those pivotal roles and decision making roles. But they're so reliant on others around them, and they have a split second to make a call. You know, they they don't 
um, proceed with the, the decisions, but they make 350 odd decisions or 400 decisions a game, but they don't go through with them. They've got all these things flying around in their heads. Um, you know, what's in front of them, the kick space, the calls coming in from outside, the pressure on themselves. You know, they call them the triple threaters. So that's the run, pass, kick option that they have to have. Yeah. And this information's fed into them all the time. And they've got to make the right decision. But based around trust and belief in, their, in the game plan that's been put in front of them. Right. And obviously then all the players who are involved understand why the game plan's in place. So they're more confident that they can make the call. Yes. When, they, when they can make the call. Right. So generally, um, the aim is the weakness is on the edge of the defence. That's that's where you want to get to if you can. Now, if you can't get there, uh, what's the next best? Well, you have to sort of think about, well, what what is best? So if you can't get to an edge, try a short side play. So you get to the middle of the field and reverse the play back. Right. Hopefully you've caught those slower defenders or... Uh, what would I call them, returning backs that aren't set in the defensive line yet, and it's usually a little bit of space. Now, what, what is happening at the moment is you see in the defensive lines that the the uh, um, centres, outside centres, are calling players around the corner to to fill up those voids in terms of the defensive line. So your, your bigger men are asked to go from left to right or right to left very quickly and fill those voids around the rucks in terms of defenders, being a defender, sorry. So that's when you, you could have a ball off the floor from your 90 or 10 and then an inside pass to that roaming 15. Mm. That's the pivot on the open side or the short side. And then he takes that space that's being vacated by a slowly uh, resetting forward. So all mm. these things are options that it's they are planned, but it's so important to understand that players have to make the decision on the field. And this is where your trainings, analysis and decision-making comes into, into play during the game when you're under pressure. So obviously players are watching the opposition, they're watching their own um, their own actions, they're reflecting on previous games. So let's go into the training field now. So we've got a, a basic plan in place now um, and we know roughly where we want to attack in our minds. How are you going to play that out on the pitch? Because... I suppose in the olden days, uh, we might have done it with um, unopposed run-throughs. Um, are they still relevant now, or are they are they firmly consigned to the to the bin? How, how do you actually practice um, getting yourself into situations where you're going forward, then you're going in to have to go into shape, then you're having to dent the opposition? How does one set that out on a training field? Um, if we look at two scenarios, I suppose you could say is a normal club rugby player and you know, they're playing um, um, Division One or Division Two in England, or mm. would would talk about the uh, professional side of it. So it's very hard when you have only 15 or 20 players. Very very hard, but you can mm. map it out for them on the field with the reserve players. In this part of the field, we want to run this play, and I'll set it up. And I want the decisions made around our 9-10 combination. So it could be an mm. inside-outside pass around the first ruck. Mm. Very simple to put in play. If you've got a good shape and you're coming off a touchline, you're saying what I've um, spoken about before, having the big men in the middle of the field as defenders, that's where we want to target. And I want um, Dan Cottrell at 15 running a short ball line through that hole. Back in your day, Dan. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so that, 
So if we look at we look at those scenarios that it can be done at, at an amateur level, you can plan it as long as everyone understands their roles and the way we want to play as a team. We have no problems, and you always have to go back to your team profile, Dan. That's why probably I haven't reiterated it before. Is that everything's based around your team profile? What strengths mm. and weaknesses have in your team? So we can't, cannot forget that. And I think a lot of club coaches do. They see a lot of stuff on TV, and that's what they want to play. Mm. Um, when we get into the the professional environment or full time environment, you have time and you have players to start mapping sequences or uh, deficiencies out in defensive lines. Mm. So some teams might have a flyer or a, or a, um, a shooter, as they call them, and it's up to those decision makers around the ball carrier to tell them to take the space or take the carry or shift the ball early. And that's that comes with experience and, I suppose, knowledge of the game. And you have, to, you have to try and emulate this during your training runs and you have to maybe put a bib on a shooter and let him fly I just, so just, uh, I think I understand what a shooter is, but just for those who might not know what that exactly means, what, what, uh, what's that terminology? Indicate? So the shooter is, is a, um, a, a one-man, uh, what would I call him, um, an instigator of defence that flies mm. up a little line to turn the opposition attack inside, so they can turn possession over, and he flies out of the line. So all of a sudden we have an opportunity to either, because. Um, Defence is about systems and staying connected. So if you find someone that flies out of the line or a shooter, they've left their defensive system. And it could be employed by the opposition. So you have to take those opportunities. And it's probably usually an inside shoulder of that shooter that you have to take. There's the space that he leaves for you. And as I'm catching the ball, I need to have comms, you know, communication mm. from my outside men that's going to tell me to take that space. Because as I turn after catching that ball, bang, he's usually there. So mm -hmm. if I have early comms, I need that. So yeah. those are the little things that you need to understand about defensive systems. And through analysis, you can see this. You know, it's it's the beauty of um, analysis. You cannot hide anymore. Frailties <laughs> of the defense and frailties of attack, you just can't hide. So, you know, you're going to be exploited. Now, how about teams who um, um, have got a couple of key defenders, the players who make the big tackles. Um, how, how do you avoid them or make them less effective? Um, so I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was coaching um, the Falcons up there in, in England, um, we had a couple of game plans for that reason, um, tactics within our game plan. And I remember playing Bath, and Francois Lowe was always standing in the back line as a defender on a, on a short line out, of course. And um, so I sent um, our, our flanker um, straight at him as a, as a decoy line. And, of course, those players with that high end, you know, I want to go and get someone mentality, mm. that's, that was Francois Lowe. Sorry, Francois, if you're listening. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's, um, it's one of those things you've got to look at. Yeah, if he comes hard at the defensive line, you've got to try and stop and create those opportunities. So we sent a, a short ball um, player in. Um, the ball was released out of the back of him and it, to an outside centre and inside ball to our winger who, who found that space. Mm. Those are the little things you have to look at in terms of uh, what the defence systems are doing and also what the individuals are doing. Now, if you've got one of those players that is very focused on going up and hurting someone, well, you try and take him out of the game quickly. 
Right. Um, I think uh, Mr. Brits from Saracens was exactly the same. So you play the same sort of play around those players. Right. But then you've got to be mindful that he only does it once. Um, and then what's the next? So if they're all going to start jamming in from outside in defence, there's that kick pass opportunity. So you have to have those variations up your sleeve all the time. Right. And those variations, uh, it's essential that you don't sort of say we're going to have them, but never practice them because you've got to be comfortable to use them in a, in, in all sorts of situations and be able to read read what's going on. So uh, going back then to um, you're talking, you've been talking about frameworks and setups then. Um, I think there some coaches probably have a, a playbook, which is thousands of pages long. Uh, I'm sure yours isn't. W- what is what is practical for, as you say, like a, a club coach, and what is practical, say, for a pro coach in terms of the number of plays that they have in order to sort of bring themselves into a situation when they can just play, play, play? If you, if you think about what we're trying to do, you know, you could have um, three or four strike plays per game off, off certain line-outs. So you might have your full mm. line-out. Six, five, or some player four-man line-out. What are you trying to achieve off those? And it has to be that gain line or a play to get you back down a short side. So maybe two or three out of each of those scrum plays. What I've tried to do is keep those very simple in terms of we have a play setup that has three or four options off it. Right. Um, most teams now, if you look at the scrum defense the touch judges are allowing teams to creep into that four meter, or mm. assistant referees, sorry, into <laughs> uh, that four meters. Um, how do you negate that? So all of a sudden, the halfback's allowed to pick the ball out of Locke's feet. Um, so all these things, in, and they, they call it a zero ball, so the halfback now is firing a parallel pass to the goal line off the scrum. Right. So that means they're taxed inside the five meter. So these, th- these things here have to be so precise in what you're doing and you're trying to pick on a very weak shoulder straight away or a seam that has been opened and left by a indecisive defender and that's usually around your 910 channel or your outside center channel because those connections are very important on defense between the scrum and the first pair of hands defending so it's, it's one of those things that um, i've tried to ensure that the players understand we only need two or three Simple strike moves to get over that gain line to get our um, continuity underway and then get into our shape once we get to an edge or close to an edge. Right. So that means that uh, a playbook isn't just um, um, a, a set of pages which are randomly thrown up in the air and you grab one. Everyone is interconnected with uh, the philosophy, perhaps, for the, the team, or is, is that the wrong word? No, no, I think that that's that's the right word. You know, philosophy. Everyone has to understand the vision of the team based around our strengths and weaknesses of our team profile and the principles of players. Nothing's changed, Dan. I think at the end of the day, coaches and players try to overcomplicate. You know, I, mm. I look at some of the lineouts. You know, there's there's some fantastic lineout options, but how many of those come off? You know, it's usually yeah. a, a fumble at the lineout or a play that we can. Um, you know, utilise that involves every line-out member, but really the decision-makers are in the back line. Um, and, then, and at the end of the day, what, what's going to happen after that? That's the key, you know. You get your strike play done over the game line, and what's next? We need some big, momentous men coming around the corner to take it over the game line again. Yeah. Or that goes to that space on the edge that we spoke about before. 
Now, uh, so let's uh, talk a bit more more about those uh, decision makers. And so it just goes back to uh, a thought I was having earlier then. So let us say you've got a a major ball carrier and you've got two decision makers around that ball carrier, one or two decision. Is that extra player, the player isn't the ball carrier, how often are they going to carry the ball? Is it going to, I mean, in the past, some players have just been nominated as you're a ruck clearer and that's all you're going to do. I mean, I'm sure the game's moved on from there, but... How much are they getting their hands on the ball in the sort of shape? I mean, once we break it up, obviously it's changed. Changes. Yeah, yes, definitely. I think um, well, I'll just cast my mind back to Newcastle days when I was trying to get this this sort of shape underway with them, and you know, a couple of the old growly props said, "Oh, how many <laughs> times are we going to pass the ball?" Well, I remember we played our final against um, Bedford Blues in that championship promotion to get back up and um, the big burly prop threw a pass to Alex Tate that scored under the posts. And I said, well, you see there, Thomas, this is what this is what you have to do. <laughs> so you have to think about, yes, they are in a role that they have to catch and pass under pressure and you train accordingly. And it's a two or three minute, four or five minute sort of um, little school blocks that these players have to do every training run, you know, in their units or their, or their, um, in their work-ons. But going back to your key point there is that, yes, they make decisions, not just carry and catch and pass, but also mm. about ruck timing, you know, mm. allowing um, the ball carrier to do his work, get over the game line, win the collision, accelerate through contact. And then my role is to make sure I do the same thing to support him. And then right. that ruck clear comes into position into play or on the man on the outside that calls a short pass off him once he breaches or there's a space for me to hit that short pass from. So there's a lot of decisions, and you have to keep. Oh, this is what pre-season's all about, you know. It's um, and them understanding their roles, the communication parameters that they have to have, the vision in front of them, um, mm. the pressure they're under, and you slowly build that through the pre-season, so, so they feel comfortable and have a belief in the game plan and the tactics and their ability to play within it. Okay, then. So there's a there's a player who's got to make these decisions. Um, and they've got to make them under pressure. So obviously they've got to be skilled and continually upskilled. So with maybe more experienced players, how much time are they going back to the basics of things like catch pass or uh, clearing rucks or making tackles? It was quite fortunate. Actually, I just read a, read a um, an article from Stuart Lancaster. Oh, this yeah. morning. This morning. Yeah, I think I might have read the same one uh, as well. Actually, yeah, it was yeah. it was pretty good, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. And I think it was um, slide nineteen. Yeah. <laughs> it says about practice your basics. So mm. Fords don't go out and goal kick. Mm. So why are we seeing Fords go out and have drop goals before trainings? Mm. These are their these are their times for these moments to be taken seriously and get out there and do their their basic core skills, catch pass mm. under pressure, grab the nines, grab the tens, work off a, a real accurate pass. Um, and just just going back to a couple of key things, I remember um, Ozzy McLean told me uh, when the Lions test was out here, um, and in the second test, the, the Lions just come at them so hard with line speed, and what and we weren't making gain line. And the, the key there was is that we were catching and then running We'd gone away from the principles of run, catch, run, because usually right. the, the de- defense has to stop to make tackles. And at that, sp- at that time, there's a weak shoulder. 
and they got back into got back on track again in the third test and uh, took took them to task. Unfortunately, it was a draw, but um, yeah. you can see the momentum shift anyway from the first test. Right. So why? I mean, these are players who are some of the most skillful in the world and have been playing rugby for a very long time, and they'd stopped running onto the ball. What did what, what had changed for them? Because obviously the coaches were still coaching them well. So why why were they why had they gone back like that? I think it would have, would have been a mindset of the line speed from the, the lines, the opposition. Right. Um, and that that happens. You know, you saw it in the World Cup last year in terms of the line speed, um, different players, shooters coming out of the line, putting mm. putting the the frights up the opposition. Mm. And in those situations, yeah, if you haven't practiced those threats or that that um, pressure, you can't you cannot cope. So you, what do you do? You go back to type, which is tuck and carry. And what mm. happens there? You get isolated, turned over, penalty, or or um, um, counter attack. So these these things are important that you do train these and. As you said before, it's it's important that everyone understands what their roles are, their options are, but at the end of the day, it's about ball security. Now, one of the things I was going to ask you is uh, how much, what are the current trends? Now, it's, it strikes me that pretty much all the way through this, that the principles haven't changed. Uh, I mean, I, I always think who wrote those principles because they are, they are pillars of the game and nobody seems to argue with them and they're quite hard to argue with. So... I don't know who came up with them, but they haven't changed. But there are obviously trends in the game which have changed. And it strikes me that you are saying it's mostly through the defence, which is now changing the attack. Is Has attack actually changed at all? Or is it having to react? Uh, as, sorry, what I really mean is, is the attack at all going to lead defences or are defences going to shape attacks? Well, I actually wrote two things down here too. Exactly those same <laughs> things. So we're on the same page here, Dan. Yes, um, that's good. <laughs> you, you're going to have a you're going to have a philosophy of you know um, we're going to score more points than the opposition. So to do that, you've got to hold on to the possession for long periods, and that puts you under pressure, fatigue, all those sorts of things. Yeah. Or we're going to be the team that stops the opposition from scoring points. Now I think you know they always say that defence wins games. Yes, it, it sure yeah. does. But at the end of the day, you still got to get across that chalk to score points. So you have to think about where teams are most vulnerable. And a lot at the moment is, you know, that the the laws of the game have changed in terms of um, looking after the player in the air. So there's a lot more mm. kicking in the game. Um, if you think about uh, the South Africans, the Springboks in the World Cup, how many times De Klerk kicked? You know, he slowed mm. the game down to put a box kick up. And at the end of the day, they're their chase wasn't as good as what their kick was. But by the end of the tournament, man, it was outstanding. They put so much <laughs> pressure around that ball in the air. Mm. Um, and they had guys that actually committed to the ball in the air. Um, so there was a decent challenge, and the referees refed the game accordingly. Um, and I was, I was, you know, I'd take my hat off to the referees. It was pretty tough at times for them. Mm. But that's, that's the way you have to start thinking. Have we got a kicking game? If so, have we got the chases? Um, if the opposition get the ball, what do they do after? Do they run or do they kick back? If they kick back, great. They've given us possession further down the field. We haven't had to use all our energies up around that, you know, that grey area, which is the 10 metre to 10 metre area, which is a lot of players played in. So those are the things you must think about. The um, the way 
that the backfield is placed, you know, as I mentioned before, with the 10 and the 15. The Ireland do it a little bit different. They have um, Connor Murray back there because he's a big man. He's a big defender. Um, he's got a good boot on him for a nine as well. So that the And Johnny Sexton is up the front. Um, so teams play differently, but in the same breath, you could say that every team is playing the same or trying to play the same to their strengths or weaknesses of their team or the opposition. So the defence side of it for me is making sure that, you know, as an attacking coach or a a philosophy on attack, we've got to really understand what the opposition defence is doing, not just in phase one, two or three, probably for up to six phases, and who's attacking our ruck, if they're leaving rucks, what can we do at our first ruck or second ruck? Um, If there's a tight defence, have we got a kick-pass option? Um, if, you know, if you look at um, players like Nani Lamapi at the moment, he's been working so hard on his on his kick, so he becomes our second pair of hands to kick the ball down the middle of the field, which is unprotected. So all of a sudden, the fullback or the ten is running back to that position. It's a long way to kick to touch, so it's probably a shortened kick to the touch. So all of these little things you've got to take on board is in terms of uh, with your attack hat on each week. Right, so I'm now uh, now uh, developing my plan for next season, say, and uh, the first thing you said was, and a lot of coaches forget this, is look at what your team's capable of, and what what its strengths and weaknesses. So on the so once I've sort of made a, a list and menu or um, spreadsheet of my team's strengths and weaknesses, what's the first area that then you are looking at because we talked quite a lot about kicking there but uh club woodward would say set piece would be his first thing that he looks at what sort of what's what's the top of your list obviously there are lots of things underneath it what's what's the number one thing to work on first oh yeah i would say that your set piece is priority you know you have to win quality ball um quality top you know top quality ball ball delivery gain line and phase play after that Right. No, I think so just just go go so uh, you win win top quality ball. That's number one. Yes, win top quality ball. Gain number line. Number two. Gain line. Gain line. Yeah. Position. Go forward. Right. It's, and it's very it's very simple, Dan. Yes. Yeah. Um. You, you can't sort of underestimate that those basics have to be done well. Um. And you think you know the forwards are away for forty minutes, all they're doing is standing doing lineouts. But at the end of the day, they've got to. You know, they've got to win us the ball and you've got to give yeah. them time. You give them credit too, you know, they're like a little um, sheepdog, you know, you give them a pat on the head and a biscuit when the job gets done. <laughs> now, just just remind me what position you used to play, Peter, before I uh, move on to the... You can, t- uh, you can tell, it's, it's a guess. I was a back. Um, yeah. I was a, a 10 or a 15 and a midfielder, so... Uh, it's just the lovely way you talked about the forwards as if they're in a, in, a, in another breed, and of course they of course they are in a very important they are, breed they too. Are. And I, they get into and, some dark places those big <laughs> So let us assume that they've also got to get in the dark places over the gain line uh, as well. So what sort of uh, hints and tips are you giving them to um, get them over the gain line more effectively? Because some players are going to try and run over other players. Uh, that's not always going to work. So is it still the basics of um, a bit of footwork before contact or is it a little bit more than that now? Oh, I think, you know, as I said, it's, I thought we've just mentioned this, you know, they've, they've got to win the ball for us first and that's, mm. that's priority, but then they've got to get their heads out of where they are and get, get to the where they need to be. 
Right. Um, and for that to happen, you know, you have you have set guidelines on terms of um, width of passes from nines and tens. Mm. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, yeah. But all, also the the way that forwards get around around the field these days is much more efficient than the olden days. And I, and I would go back to say that club rugby players are probably the most inefficient players in the, yeah. in the, in the game. Um, big arc lines, you know, if you, if you track a player, he runs at least another 15 metres than he needs to, rather than, um, I think the terminology is L lines, which is yeah. straight to the point of where you need it next and set up in a, in a direct position. So those things there, I think that that's all done during your pre-season setting up of your shapes and your carries and so forth. So everyone understands that you've got to get there quicker than whatever the opposition can in defence that is. Quicker and also not have, well, get there quicker by not running as far, which of course uh, preserves energy as well. Yes, and as long as we get over the gain line, as I said, you know, there's, there's that momentum shift straight away. A metre over the gain line means the defence is two metres behind the attack line. So all those little principles that the players must understand of why we're doing things as well. And you, you um, say you're going to talk about the width of the 9-10 pass. Yes, what, so if you, if you think about, um, you know, th- three or four second delivery ball from a ruck, that allows even you and I could get round a 15-metre <laughs> channel <laughs> in three to four seconds to defend yeah. then. So it makes it obvious that we must set up quicker than the opposition. So that width off your nine is usually around about, say, a six to eight metre pass. Now, that that ball is in the air, so those players are going to come hard at you. The wider you are, the more time that ball is in the air and the more time you have, less time you have to control or make a decision with it because you're going to be uh, um, hit by a defender. So those things there, um, and, and just off the nine, is that that's where you want your flat line delivery so we can get over the gain line again and dent them quickly. So that run, catch, run situation is a shorter pass to get over the gain line. Right. So the, the, what's happened before is that uh, players have taken the ball um, further away and not been running onto it, which gives the defence that extra few metres or moments to get, get in your face. Yeah, it does. And, and also, the wider you are, you feel uncomfortable. So what do you do? You take another step back. That's another metre behind the game line you're going to carry into. So the quicker you can get around the corner, get over the game line again with accuracy, the quicker we can get more deliveries, the quicker we get over the game line again. Right. And these, these things are, to a certain extent, are mechanical because uh, you're getting into position very, very quickly. But obviously, they're also making decisions as well. So um, as they're coming round that corner um, on the airline and getting into position very, very quickly, they're looking in front of them as well. Uh, so uh, who, who's going to call that the ball may go behind them or they're going to take the ball out of the back? What, what, uh, where does that come from? That comes from the decision makers, 10 and 15? Yeah, it does. And plus also, as I mentioned, was the outside centres and the wings. Mm. Basically space because the opposition, say you have a play off your um, line out or scrum that takes out the, the, the 10 and the 12 in defence. That means there's a, a slight disconnection between both centres straight away. Mm. But also the um, folding players on the defensive line coming to fill that void that the 10 and 12 have left from, say, a line out. Uh, two forwards around the corner predominantly. 
that centre has to stay until those holes are filled by those two forwards. All of a sudden, mm. there's space and disconnection between the outside centre and the wing, open side wing. So that space now is called by the opposition wing. Mm. He's calling over a, a flush ball or a release ball out the back or just a simple release from the forwards. So that there is, is vitally important that you can't miss those opportunities because you may only get one of those. Otherwise, you're going to have to work for your third or fourth or fifth, sixth phase and then slows down mm. kick because you haven't gone anywhere. And I think it's essential, um, and tell, tell me if I'm wrong here, that uh, say you're playing a, um, a pattern of play where you're going to go to a point and then you're going to go to point B from the next ruck. But uh, when you're going to point B, at any time, there's it could be, it might be wrongly called a cancel call when the ball's actually going to go to somewhere else because someone's spotted the space. Exactly. Um, so so the, the, the problem is often coaches will run, teams will run a set of three plays which have got no options other than the one which is going to take it to a certain point. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And then you get slow ball and we slow it down even further and we kick position away that we've worked so hard for. So right. I think at the end of the day, if, if we can you know, get some space that we can work to very quickly, I think that's that's the way that the coaches need to think if, it, if it's on and we've got the skill factor and we've got the players. If we haven't, we become a little bit more robotic, but you'd like to think that at whatever level we're at, there's those spaces that are going to be left because players, if they're out of system or the defence system is under pressure, players do panic. Mm. They do. And so, uh, I mean, if, if I was to summarise really what uh, a big takeaway for me here is, actually, it starts right at the top with your philosophy, your vision for the game. So every player has has some um, buy-in to this. They know where or why you're trying to do it. And then everything else fits in uh, underneath it, because otherwise uh, the players are, as you say, almost going to be robotic and they're not going to react to the 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 situation in front of them that's that's correct you know you, you see that in a nutshell um you know, i did find it a little bit difficult you know going up northern hemisphere to try this um hmm. but you know the, the players around really really thrived on it and hmm. we had some really good opportunities and we did undo some really top teams up there for those those sort of patterns but when teams that are bigger than you start closing you down it, it hmm. becomes a little bit tougher and they, they starve you off position and that's what, you know, the Saracens and the Leicesters and those sorts of teams did to us when we played for Newcastle. So you can't, you know, at the end of the day, you can only do with what you've got. And, you know, mm. you've got to applaud the players that you have and, you know, keep that belief going. And and at the end of the day, you know, if you've got a philosophy and everyone sticks to it and, you know, you, you build that belief and, and trust within your systems and, you know, anything, anything can happen. Yeah. And in a sense, I mean, I know that... Uh, inevitably at uh, the level you're coaching at uh, you are measured on the wins uh, but from uh, purely from satisfaction and for coaches who maybe play within two or three leagues maybe move up a year maybe not the satisfaction of having a philosophy which everyone buys into and then they play it and it's successful uh, some weeks and some weeks you're just going to have to say yeah we've come up against a team which has got three or four outstanding players and we're we're never going to beat them I mean uh, yeah, I mean, let, let's say you go to the World Cup. I mean, for Japan, they're never going to win the World Cup. But what what for them would be a win would might be 
um, a good World Cup would be let's play to our philosophy. So mm. I think that's a big takeaway, I think, for people listening in, is that um, you've, you've got to be realistic. Um, I mean, when, when you were taking, say, Newcastle uh, up into the Premiership, did you think we're going to win the Premiership this year? Or did you think, uh, well, let's... I mean, that's probably a dangerous thing to say, but could you, could you say that? Or could you say, actually, we'll do our very best to get to this stage? What, what sort of goals are you setting your teams? Well, with that, with that one there, I think when, when we made that up to that, um, the, the Premiership, it was, you know, it's quite exhilarating. So you, you get excited mm. about it. It's a fantastic um, competition. So you say you want to you want to win as many games as you can, and that's that's being true to yourselves. So you'd have to take every team on its merits that you played. And I remember going to play um, Leicester down there at their home ground, and and we were all over them in that first half. But as I said, it was one of those little passes that went went astray. We made line breaks from that mm. sort of one three three one pattern that we had, and it went astray. And big. Um, um, oh, the lock's name, Burrows. Um, should have scored under the post. We would have been up at half time, and that enthusiasm from that then would have lifted the whole team. Mm. Um, when we played Saris down there on the artificial, we were up um, eight three going into half time. And against Saris, you don't um, go off task. We had a good <laughs> kicking game, but then our fullback decided to carry back and got turned over and it was 10-8 at half time. Those little things, mm. you've got to stick and the players need to understand why you're doing things that we don't go off task. Make good decisions. Make the right decisions. Um, yeah. Why, then, why then, are you doing it? Why are you yes, doing yes. it? It's so, so important, isn't it? Yeah. So and You have to uh, learn from those, Dan. You have to learn. You can't blaspheme your players all the time because <laughs> you, know, you won't have a team left. But... Uh, <laughs> they got to understand and learn from those mistakes as well, and you grow with them and help them grow. Mm. Well, Peter, we've, we've covered some great stuff there, and um, uh, I, you, you were keen to uh, get the grey matter going, and uh, we got my grey matter going with some uh, some great insight into how you can create almost a, a game plan from the very, very basics. So if, if you were to sum up the sort of the main couple of things that you would say to a coach when you're sitting down to set out your game plan, what what are the, the things that they've got to be concentrating on first? Well, we'll go with our team profile first. Yeah. And we're strength and weaknesses of our team on a, on a, for, our, for our attack mindset. Um, what are our key decision makers thinking? You know, what yeah. involve them all the time. They're, they're your coaches during a game. They dictate what happens out on the field. And if they feel that they're making the right decisions, you let them make the right decisions. You let them go. And then you can discuss later if they aren't. But right. there must be a reason behind that why they've made those decisions. So you always have those players involved in your setups right from day one of your pre-season. Um, the next thing was plan and train what you're going to do. Don't change it. If, if you've decided from Monday this is what you're doing, you can't change it on a Friday. Um, and that's one mistake that early on when you have all these things going through your head as a coach, oh, they've put their team sheet out, oh, we should do this play, and all of a sudden you're changing it during your yeah. captain's run. You don't do mm. that. You just mm. stick to what you've trained during the week, and hopefully those decision makers can see that during the game and rally the troops during, during a, a stoppage. Um, and then everyone has to reflect. You know, every every even the players reflect on their game, 
coaches should reflect, did we get day one right? Did we get day two right? What did we do to um, encourage our players and have that vision of this game this week? Did we get the right messages across? So you have to keep reflecting. And then that goes back to the team profile and the team selections for the day. And then it all starts again. So it just keeps going round and round and round and round until it becomes, um, what would I call it? It becomes... um, Hereditary. Everyone, everyone's buying in and talking, yeah. and it just it just evolves, and that's why the pre-seasons are so important. That there's a lot of chat, there's a lot of video, there's things to be altered, and everyone has a buy-in. But you have to take on board what the players are thinking as well. You can't just go and say my philosophy is, and this is how it's going to work. Mm. Philosophy is for everyone to understand and have a have a, a piece of it as well. Well, and. I mean, unfortunate times, but um, a great time to actually spend some time with your players, preparing them mentally for the season and saying, look, this is our philosophy. Do you understand this? And giving them footage and giving them ideas. So when you when you actually get back on the field, eventually uh, they've got a much clearer idea because time time is so short for us and we don't have that time to reflect. And uh that if you have the, if that clear understanding, I mean the other thing which the big takeaway I'm going to have from this for myself is that um, when you say plan, that does not mean a robotic. We're going to do this here, this here. It is setting yourselves up to play uh, once you have created those those mismatches and weaknesses. Uh, it's not about right. We go to A to B to C. We go to A because we might be able to do three or four different things from that. But if we can't, then we go to B. Um, and unless the players understand their roles and understand why you're doing it, uh, it's just going to be a complete mess. I mean, you would like to think everyone plays what we might call heads up uh, rugby, but that, that doesn't doesn't happen, does it? It's there is a plan somewhere uh, there in is, there. Yes. Yeah, there is, and you know, heads up rugby really starts from once we get into our our rhythm. That's mm. when it starts. Um, you know, I just watched, the, as I said, a little bit of French at rugby at the moment. It's, have a, it's having a renaissance. It's um, mm. exciting. You know, it's um, it's how they used to play, and they've got some really young, talented players in that in that back line. And you, you don't stifle that. You know, that's that's an innate skill that they've had all their lives, and we we can't make those players into robots. You know, let them have flair, but let mm. ask them to use it at the right time. Well, I mean, I'm thinking back to that try that they was disallowed in the end for a forward pass they scored against Wales, and that was that was uh, French flair. But simple stuff also done done well and at pace. Uh, but players wanting to pass the ball, move into space, it is fantastic. So, well, we look forward to uh, getting back and playing that, uh, playing rugby full stop. So, Peter, thanks very much for your time and all your thoughts. That I really, really enjoyed that. No, thanks, Dan, and uh, thanks for the opportunity, and good luck to everyone out there when we get back on the field. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So thank you all for listening. That was a Rugby Coach Weekly podcast. If you want to hear more, uh, go over to the rugbycoachweekly.net, click on the podcast button, and see lots of other podcasts as well. So thank you again to Peter, and thanks again for listening in, and look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed.
We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.